I've been reading this book this week. Um, that's the front cover of the book. You can see up there. Um, it's the front cover twice, once the right way up and once upside down. It's called uh, Divine Comedy, Human Tragedy. What is Life? by uh, Glenn Scrivener, who's a, a writer and speaker who some of you will have come across, I think I've mentioned before, in various contexts. Uh, he's asking the question, is the story of life a tragedy or a comedy? Uh, what is life? What kind of tale? Comedy or tragic fail, he says. Not is life funny, it's mostly not. But is it hopeful? What's the plot? He's using the categories of tragedy and comedy uh, a bit like uh, we, we use them with Shakespeare. I don't know if you can rem remember back to when you were at school. <coughs> Excuse me, I think it's my cow biscuit from earlier on. I don't know if you can remember back to when you were at school. And uh, I think uh, I had to do Macbeth and A Midsummer Night's Dream uh, when I was doing O-Levels. So you may have had to do different ones. But Shakespeare plays get divided into tragedies and comedies, don't they? Uh, and the comedy is not so much about whether it makes you laugh out loud. My teacher kept telling me that it was funny. Uh, but it's about whether it moves towards hope or not, whether it has a happy ending. Um, as uh, Glenn Scrivener says in his book, the classic tragedy is a frown. You travel up, then tumble down. That's how a tragedy works in Shakespeare, isn't it? You've got that, the striving for, whether it's for success or for 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 love, or whatever it might be, uh, Hamlet, Macbeth, uh, what else, Romeo and Juliet, I guess. But whatever they manage to achieve, however well they manage to do, eventually it's over the hill and down the other side, and it ends in death and disaster, always. Uh, if this life is all we have, then the shape of life is a frown. As up as we manage to get it, it's always down the other side. Uh, in turn, though, a comedy's a smile. You plumb the depths, then end in style. Uh, that's his point, and that's how it works in Shakespeare as well. Uh, this is Much Ado About Nothing, isn't it? Or Twelfth Night, or A Midsummer Night's Dream. You know, full of uh, foolishness and disaster and mistaken identities and all kinds of things going wrong. But you know it's going to end with hope, with well, usually a wedding, isn't it? Or multiple weddings, uh, and reconciliation and celebration. It's not about the laughs or pain, Glenn Scrivener says. It's all about the final frame. Basically, does life end with a wedding celebration or does it just end in a funeral wake? Philippians 2 says to us, the shape of Jesus' life is not tragic but comic. Not hopeless but hopeful. And that is why we can live confidently and hopefully in him, even in a world where we're facing life's hardships and challenges and struggles and even disasters sometimes along the way. The kinds of things that we've seen Paul talking about in chapter 1 already. And remember, he's writing this stuff from his prison cell, not from some kind of comfortable holiday island in the Caribbean or something. Uh, look at the summary of Jesus' life in verses 5 to 11. It is shaped like a smile. It starts in heaven, verse 6, with the Son of God laying to one side all of his rights, his claims to equality with God. And what does he do? He descends, doesn't he? He makes himself nothing. He becomes like a servant. He takes on human likeness, lower and lower. It's a descent that doesn't end on Christmas Day in Bethlehem. 
because he has more descending to do, humbling himself even to death. And not just any death, the cursed death of the cross. If that was the end, well then it would be an unmitigated tragedy, wouldn't it? A complete disaster. But the cross is the hinge of the story. Verse 9, we're told because Jesus did all of that, all of that descending, therefore he's exalted. He rises and he ascends to the highest place. He's given the highest honour and the highest name. And the acknowledgement of all of heaven and earth. The trajectory is one big smile, down to the bottom, and then up the other side again. Very clever illustration that, that he came up with, but it works, doesn't it? The story of this divine comedy, the story of the God who brings a happy ending and new hope to all the broken lives in this broken world, is this story, as Paul tells it here in Philippians 2, that's completely shaped by humility. And in Jesus' humility, we find hope and we find inspiration. And in fact, the big urging of this passage, the encouragement from Paul to his friends in the city of Philippi and to us today, is to live like this, to be humble like Jesus was humble. Because when we strive upwards, when we do everything we can to please ourselves, to get what we want, then we are heading up a hill which only leads to the top and then down the other side again. But the call of Jesus says to us, as James puts it in his letter, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Uh, or as uh, Jesus put it himself in, in the Gospels in, in more than one place, as you might remember, that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Uh, Winston Churchill famously said about Clement Attlee, his great rival, he is a modest man, but then he has a lot to be modest about. Uh, you might have heard that quote before. Now, humility is not quite the same as modesty, is it? But neither of them, I, I suggest, are exactly the most highly rated characteristic that people look for today. I mean, I don't know about you. Lots of people want to be more confident, don't they? Or more successful, or more fit, or whatever it is you might think of. But how many of us think to ourselves, well, what I'd really like is to be more humble? Who wants that? But Paul says, if you look, um, back in verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, because that's what we are, that's what we've been reminded of in chapter 1, isn't it? We've been united with Christ. We're his people. Chapter 1, verse 1, we are God's holy people in Christ Jesus, in Philippi. Well, we're not in Philippi, we're those people in Fermi. Uh, and so, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, if this is an encouragement to you, says Paul, if you're comforted by the love that Jesus has lavished on you, if you share in his spirit, then Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And the way to do this in verses 3 and 4 is by imitating Jesus' humility. Now, being united, one in spirit and of one mind, looks like humbling ourselves before the Lord who lifts us up, the one who humbled himself for us. Now, we have one purpose as the people of Jesus when our agenda is not set by our own desires or wants or what we think we need, but by our allegiance to him. 
And when this happens to us, it's life-changing. And I suggest it's also church-changing. Just look at the contrast in verses 3 and 4. Not selfish ambition or vain conceit, not looking out for number one, but humility, valuing others more highly than yourself, looking to the interests of others. And it's not just pie in the sky, because that's how Jesus lived, isn't it? That's how he lived. Instead of striving for success and eventually running out of steam and dying in tragedy, tragedy, he strives downwards. In human terms, people look at what Jesus did and it, it appears to be a complete failure, doesn't it? He's executed young. He's defeated, surely. Except that it is this self-humbling which is what leads to his exaltation. And that's the comedy. That's what makes us smile. The humble, crucified man who is Lord of heaven and earth. And then that, that poem uh, that we read in the second part of our reading kind of unpacks that, doesn't it? Um, first of all, that Jesus Christ is humble even to death. See, the self-important person says, don't you know who I am? That's the catchphrase, isn't it, of the important person? You know, Imagine the celebrity um, who discovers they can't get the best table in the restaurant. A little, little word with the manager. Uh, do you not know who I am? And before we laugh at others, yeah, we all have a little streak of that in us, don't we? That, um, that tendency to want to think, I, I've got a right to that last parking space. You know, I should be further up in this queue than somebody else, shouldn't I? I've got a greater right. If anyone ever had the right to say, don't you know who I am? Then surely that was Jesus, wasn't it? And yet he's the one person in history who never says that. He never does. Because he does nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but only looks to the needs of others before himself. That's the heart of the gospel. We have a saviour who would do that for us. He did it for you. That's good news at the beginning of this new week. And the gospel is full of hope because this self-humbling that Jesus goes through leads to his exaltation to the highest place so that he's given this name which is above every name, that every knee should bow before him and every tongue acknowledge that he is Lord in heaven and on earth and under the earth to the glory of God. Jesus is humble and therefore Jesus is Lord. Uh, those three words, it's, in some ways it's the shortest summary of what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? To acknowledge that Jesus is Lord not anybody else. Um, what does this mean? What does this tell us about him? Well, it tells us something very important, in fact, because what we have here is, is one of the clearest statements in the New Testament that Jesus is not just uh, a good man, but he's divine. He's God himself. The Greek word Lord that Paul uses here is the same word that is used throughout the Greek Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, for God. Now, the church in the first century knew this very well. Paul was an observant Jew. He, he knows what he's doing as he writes this, as he gives this title to Jesus. It implies that he is God, and Paul still says it. Not only that, not just the title, it's the context in which it's set. Uh, there in verses 10 and 11. Let me just read to you a couple of verses from Isaiah, uh, seven or so centuries before the time of Jesus, in chapter 45. God says, by myself I have sworn a word that will not be revoked. Before me 
every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone, are deliverance and strength. And now Paul takes this text about God and applies this text to Jesus. He's saying this prophecy that every knee will bow and every tongue confess, it's about him. And of course, there's even more than that, isn't there? Just the very fact that what, what is being said here is that every knee will bow. What are we doing when we bow the knee? We're worshipping, aren't we? And who do you worship? Well, the first commandment says worship belongs only to God. And the Bible is very clear that we should worship no one but God alone. Uh, and we are called to apply this to Jesus because that is who he is. That's what this tells us about him. And so, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us uh, this week? Uh, I want to say it affects all of our lives. First of all, it should affect how we think. Uh, if we are really to bow the knee before Jesus, then that means submitting our thinking to him too. I wonder how good you are at doing that. If Jesus is Lord and we are to bow the knee to him, then it must affect the whole of our lives, including our minds, mustn't it? It's a, that Romans 12 thing of uh, being transformed by the renewing of your minds. Uh, we all think all the time, don't we? We make decisions for ourselves. We form opinions. A lot of the time we probably think other people would do very well to listen to our opinions, if you're anything like me. And we live in a world which is constantly affecting how we think about life. It, aff it affects us, doesn't it? Uh, for us, it's Western culture. You know, it's British society, the place where we've grown up. We don't notice it because it's just the air we breathe. Uh, like a goldfish in a bowl, not noticing that it's swimming in water. We kind of don't notice the, the culture around us. But it's shaping us. It's shaping our ideas, shaping our morals, shaping our opinions, our priorities, our aspirations, our politics, our spirituality all the time. And uh, in his letter to the Romans, as it says on the screen there, Paul says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. That was a warning for Christians in the Roman Empire, but it's a warning for Christians today too. But instead, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Because you're people who acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And interestingly, if you read Romans 12, the next thing he then goes on to write about, just like in Philippians 2, is about living lives that are humble in Christ. So what are the things that we might do to, to renew, so that our minds might be renewed by Jesus? What are the practical steps we might take? How can we encourage one another uh, not just to be swept along by the tide of the culture in which we swim, but to have renewed minds? Jesus himself said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Um, in the midst of all the other voices we hear, we really need to hear the voice of Jesus. If he's Lord, it must affect how we think. Uh, and we, we shouldn't be surprised if sometimes we end up going through the painful process of hearing what he says and realizing that we have been wrong about something. Sometimes a good question to ask yourself is, when was the last time I had to change my mind because of something that Jesus said in his word? affects how we think. Um, it affects more generally how we live, though. Uh, again, our tendency, isn't it, is to say, it's my life, and I will live it my way. 
You know, I'm free to do what I want any old time. That only works, though, if Jesus is not Lord, doesn't it? If he is Lord, if we're really bowing the knee to him, then he must be Lord over the whole of our lives. How we live in public and how we live in private. Again, I wonder, when you think about this, what would you say is the hardest area of your life to live as though Jesus really is Lord? You don't have to put your hand up and, and admit to it, but it's, it's sobering to reflect on, isn't it? Uh, and again, Jesus himself said something very similar uh, in John's Gospel. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. See, those who love him are not those who come to church just by coming to church. It's about acknowledging that Jesus is Lord and getting out of the door of church and living it too. If Jesus is Lord, it affects how we think, it affects how we live. Last of all, it affects everybody. Verse 9 again. Because of what Jesus has done at the cross, Paul writes, he is exalted to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord of all. Every knee, every tongue. We're not at liberty to place any kind of restriction or caveat on that repeated word, every. So that's our incentive for mission, isn't it? That's our incentive for sharing the good news of Jesus. It's a good thing when people come to bow the knee before him because it gives him rightful honour, but it's also good when people bow the knee before him because that's when we find the source of freedom and life that so many are desperately craving and searching for in our world today. It's a great picture that Philippians 2 gives us. Um, Let me close with uh, some words from Glenn Scrivener's book. Uh, The world we live in is telling us another gospel to the one that we find in the Bible. But it's a tragedy. It's shaped like a frown. It goes on and on about the good things we should be experiencing in this life and tries not to mention that for all of us, this life ends in death. Uh, Here's what uh, Glenn Scrivener says about the common view of life in our world and where it leaves us if it's true. We are the flotsam of a cosmic explosion, biological survival machines, wet robots, clinging to an insignificant rock, hurtling through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction. But still, the new flavoured latte from Starbucks is incredible. And have you tried hot yoga? And we're renovating the kitchen, so that's nice. As the annihilating tsunami of time bears down on our beach, we obsess over our sandcastles, the promotion, the holiday, the new gadget, and we dare not look up. Life is a tragedy, and this dismal tale is sold to us in every magazine and paperback. The thousand books you must read before you die, The ten must-see destinations on your bucket list. The shape of the story is up and then down. And the advertisers are primed to sell you the uppiest up that money can buy because the down really is a downer. We clamber upwards, grab for ourselves all the achievements, experiences and pleasures that we can. And then so soon we are over the hill and the grave away. 
It's up, then down. The frowny face, the tragedy. That's such a, a piercing indictment of so much in our world, isn't it? But Philippians 2 says to us, it doesn't have to be like that. There is another story, because there was one man who didn't live like this. And by faith, we are united with him. He humbled himself all the way to death. And so now he is exalted to the highest of high places. If you like, the uppiest, eternal up. The right hand of the Father in heaven. Jesus is Lord. And we are united with him. With him, we go down and then up. The smiley face. The comedy of eternal joy. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you.